All right, good morning again. As we do every week here at Shady Grove, we're going to be preaching from the Bible. And so you can go ahead and take yours out or take out your apps, whatever it is that you use. If you're new here this morning, uh, if you're visiting us, if you don't own a Bible, I want to encourage you to look at the seats uh, in front of you. There's some blue paperback Bibles. You can take those out to follow along with us. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, we're hopefully you'll take that home and that you'll read it. Uh, that's our gift to you. And so we encourage you, please, uh, to take that. Uh, we're going to be continuing our sermon series on 1 Corinthians this morning. And we've been doing this for a few weeks now. And uh, I'm going to be truthful with you guys. Uh, this, is, um, this is a hard text this morning. And this is a hard book. Uh, hard not because uh, it's difficult to understand, but hard because it's easy to be resistant to applying it to ourselves. Um, I have probably written and rewritten this sermon four times this week in an attempt to try and figure out how best to preach this and to not unnecessarily offend anybody. Um, and I think what I've decided I'm going to do is we're just going to, we're just going to go through this text and uh, see what the Lord has for us this morning. Um, like I said, this letter is going to deal with some hard things. And uh, this morning we're going to deal with and we're going to see sort of what's at the root of everything that's going on in Corinth. And uh, this past week I, I did some work trying to figure out what's the timeline of the Corinthian situation. In other words... When did Paul go to Corinth? How many times? How many letters were written? What did it look like, his relationship with them? And I kind of was hoping, you know, do, do the Corinthian problems ever get solved? Is there hope for the church in Corinth? Well, it started off all right. 1 Corinthians, not so hot. After 1 Corinthians, there's another letter that's been written that was lost to history. But we know from 2 Corinthians that it was a painful letter. We know Paul visited Corinth at some point, and it was a painful visit because he was attacked there by the people and the leaders of the church. In 2 Corinthians, he's sort of defending himself. He's, you know, uh, and there's sort of a sense, maybe there's some hope for his relationship with the people in Corinth. And then just a few decades later, when some of the early church fathers are writing about the church situation, you see Corinth is right back to being jacked up again. Um, so the question I think that raises for us is, are we going to be like the church in Corinth? Sort of staying in the way that we are, you know, staying in our sins and just sort of letting that be status quo? Or are we going to be working towards what the Lord has called us to? So please turn with me. Uh, let's, let's read together uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And then we're, we're going to jump in uh, to this text together. I'm actually going to start in verse, verse 9 and then we'll, we'll continue in verse 10 that's on the screen there behind me. So... Starting in verse 9, the Apostle Paul writes this, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there may be no divisions among you, but that you may be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean by this is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. 
Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Well, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anybody else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word and ask that you would humble us this morning and teach us to sit under your word and to receive its gentle rebukes and the love that you would have for us in Jesus Christ. Be with us, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm going to start with a little bit of a story here, taking you back in time, tell you a little bit about me. Uh, I grew up in a neighborhood, very friendly, very open neighborhood, and some of the distinctive characteristics of the neighborhood that I grew up in were um, sort of just modest middle-class houses, a lot of kids, played together all the time, a lot of open yards, okay? There were no fences in our neighborhood, right? We trusted each other, uh, I think we, and so as kids, you know, we could run from house to house, yard to yard, uh, neighborhood to neighborhood, going in and out of houses, grabbing toys, coming together, and, and sharing, you know, sort of what we had. And that was sort of the dynamic of the neighborhood that we grew up in. Next door to my house, there was this, this big plot of land that just sat empty for a long time. And it was sort of the shared space that uh, all of us kids would play on in the winter. There'd be snow piles. We'd all, you know, play King of the Hill together on, on the snow pile. And it was just this great sort of time for us to grow up in, you know? And then everything changed. That plot of land sat empty no longer, and a, a family moved in, and they built a house on that property. It wasn't just any house, though. It was three times the size of every other house in that neighborhood. It was made with fancy brick and, you know, had marble pillars out front and a three-car garage and, and fancy cars and, you know, all of that stuff. And they put up a fence. <laughs> they put up a fence. And so now, one, I have to see this big, ugly, hideous monster of a house next to me, totally kills the aesthetics of the neighborhood. More importantly, though, now if I want to go from my house to my friend's house, there's no clear path for me to get there. There's an obstacle in my way. There's an obstacle in the sharing of what we used to have, that I now have to go around in order to, to be with those whom I want to be with. So some of you may be able to see where I'm going with this. Sometimes the church can act a lot more like this one house than we want to admit. Sometimes we aren't always aware that we put up fences that prevent people from coming in and sharing what we have. Sometimes we put up fences that are barriers, that are obstacles for people coming in to participate in sharing Christ with us. And so the text we're looking at this morning is about a church that had built a lot of fences. They had put up a lot of barriers that became an obstacle to people knowing Christ. And so a few things I want us to see in the text this morning. First, I want us to understand 
what was going on in the Corinth church and the fences they were building. Second, I want to spend some time um, applying this uh, to ourselves and our situation and talk about the fences that we might be building in our churches. And then finally, we're going to see maybe what if there's a way to build a better fence, a fence that can keep people together instead of keeping us apart. Okay, so let's talk about the fences that the Corinthian church we're building together. Now, I started in verse 9 for a reason because last week Charlie opened up the series on 1 Corinthians with us and he showed us that chapter 1 has this concept of being called. Okay? And it sort of climaxes there in verse 9 where the apostle Paul says, "We have we have been called into fellowship with each other in Christ Jesus." And this word fellowship is this word some of you may know in the Greek koinonia, right? And what it means is a participation a sharing together of what we have. And so Paul's point is that we share Christ together. We participate together with him as one body. And so do you see then how verse 9 and verse 10 cause such a sharp tension? You've been called into fellowship with each other and then Paul says, I appeal to you because I hear that there's divisions in your church. How can that be? Do you see the, do you see the sharp tension there? If you're, if you're supposed to be participating and fellowshipping as one, why are there divisions? And most scholars would agree that verse 10 introduces the thematic problem of the whole letter, division. And time and time again, we see Paul coming back to, to, to the divisions that are in Corinth. We see it explicitly in chapter 3, then again with the lawsuit issues in chapter 6, with the food being offered to idols in chapters 8 and 10, with the abuse of the Lord's Supper in chapter 11, with the spiritual gifts in chapters 12 to 14, and then in his conclusion in chapter 16. Division, division, division. Division is at the root of the problems in Corinth. You see, they had built a lot of fences that had kept them from one another. And Paul mentions four groups in this letter, four groups that had begun to divide themselves. First, there was the Paul group, then you have Apollos, then you have the Cephas group, which is another name for the Apollos Peter, or sorry, the Apostle Peter, uh, not the Apollos Peter, <laughs> and uh, finally, the Christ party. And each one of these groups have divi- had divided from each other into what were likely different house churches. And so when they were apart from each other, they talked poorly about one another. When they came together, they fought and quarreled. Now, there's these different names that are associated with each group. But we must understand that it wasn't the leaders of the church that were the problem. Okay, Paul even says, you know, I baptize very few people. I don't want to be special. I don't want a fan club. So I'm grateful that no one can say that I was trying to start a fan club. And then he never once blames Apollos or Peter for the situation there. In fact, time and again in the letter, he commends Apollos for his ministry there in Corinth. You see, it wasn't the leaders that were the problem. It was the people sitting in the churches that were the problem. And what had happened was they allowed their preferences to divide them up into little cliques, and then each clique sort of chose which person do we want to associate with as sort of our spokesperson. You know, they sort of grouped themselves around a person, but what really happened was it was about their preferences. So let's talk about each of these four groups uh, just briefly. First, you have the Paul group. 
Paul group's a little bit tricky uh, to pin down because there was likely no theological issue that grouped these people together, and there was likely no cultural issue that grouped these people together. And what's also interesting, you know, Paul was the first one to come and minister to the church in Corinth. He brought, essentially, Christianity to Corinth. So if you think about it, at first, everyone would have followed Paul, right? Everybody liked Paul at first, until a division started coming. So what's likely is that the Paul group formed last. They're kind of like the leftovers, right? Sitting on the bench. Everyone else chose a group. Well, if everyone else is doing it, I guess we're just going to say we're the OG group. We're the original. Let's follow Paul, okay? So that's sort of what's going on with the Paul group. But then you have the Apollos group. Now, we have some information about Apollos from Acts chapter 18, where we read about uh, both Paul and Apollos coming to Corinth. And what we know about Apollos was that he was very, very eloquent. That's what it says in Acts 18. He's a very eloquent man, very educated, very well-spoken. And it says that he proved powerfully with his eloquence that Jesus Christ was who he said he was. And so this is very uh, kind of in opposition to Paul's preaching style, isn't it? Because at the end of, uh, in verse 17, Paul says, I didn't preach with eloquent wisdom, right? So you have Paul, the plain-spoken man, and Apollos, the well-spoken, eloquent man. And so what we have then with the Apollos group is the cultural elites, those who are well-educated, those who are well-spoken. And what was happening was they were being influenced by the pagan philosophers of the day. And, and the way you would choose a philosopher to follow was pick the one that's most eloquent. That one must be the best. We follow that one. And so that's what was happening here with the Apollos group. What was likely was, again, these were the, the, the culturally influential, the, political, the politically influential people, the, rich, the more rich people um, in, in the town. It's likely they were the smallest group, but they had a lot of influence in the city, and so they still had a lot of influence in the church. We read about these lawsuit issues later in chapter 6, and we read about these feasts where the rich come and they feast on food and the poor leave hungry. It's probably dealing with the Apollos group, okay? Because they're, in their mindset, you know, we're, we're used to hanging out with the culturally influential people. Why should we kind of changed that in the church. So they just sort of hung out with their, with their crowd in the church. That's the Apollos group. Then you have the Cephas party, the Peter party, right? Peter's group was likely the Jewish Christians, okay? The Jewish Christians that were still following Peter. And then what we know about Peter was unfortunately for some time, Peter didn't exactly touch on the uh, the food laws, the boundaries that were separating Jew and Gentile. You read about that in Acts. Then later in Galatians 2, you read about how Paul had to rebuke Peter because Peter was comfortable serving in this context where Jewish, Jewish believers were still divided from Gentile believers. And Paul's saying, Peter, what are you doing? Come on, man, you gotta, these barriers are gone. We've got to take down these fences. And so for some time, we don't know for how long, Peter was comfortable sort of just not touching on those barriers. And so the Jewish Christians were comfortable following Peter because he made them comfortable. He didn't sort of have them go associate with the Gentiles. They were sort of comfortable in their own crowd, in their own ethnic cultural crowd. And, and they kind of had this opinion that, hey, if you want to be like us, we read about this throughout the New Testament. If you want to come be like us, you got to eat what we eat, wear what we wear, do what we do. Right? They put up big barriers from people coming in 
to their group. And then finally, you have the Christ party. Now, this, one, this one's pretty interesting too because you think about it, shouldn't we all say we follow Christ? Right? Shouldn't we all say here that we're Christians? Well, of course. But apparently what was happening was there was a group of people that was using Christ's name not for unity, but for division. And these people, it's likely they were influenced by sort of the Gnostic crowds of the day. Gnosticism was a sort, uh, essentially this sort of super spiritualism, the sort of that emphasized mystical experience in your life. And so these were the people who kind of said, you know, we don't need the church. Look, you guys are divided anyways. You know, you guys are all arguing with each other. Why do we need the church? We kind of, kind of go off and do our own thing. We just need Christ, you know. These are the kind of people who never settle down in a church, but they go from church to church because they keep saying it's not spiritual enough. That's what's going on with the Christ party, okay? And so you have these four different groups of people, and they're all quarreling with each other. They don't get along. And they were comfortable maintaining the status quo of what was going on with Corinth. And Paul is saying, do you not understand? You have been called to fellowship together as one people. You're going to let this stuff divide you? You're going to let these ethnic cultural barriers continue to divide you? You're going to let your sort of cultural influence in the crowd that you like to spend time with, you're going to let that keep you apart from other people? Why? Why, why would you do such a thing? And now it would be easy for us 2,000 years later to look back and say, tisk tisk, Corinth, silly guys. They never got it right, but you know, we're doing pretty good. And it would be easy for us to sort of just pass through this text and say, you know, I don't, I'm not doing any of those things and never really apply this to ourselves. And I think that would be unfortunate for us to do this morning. And so what I want to do now is spend a few minutes talking about in light of the kinds of fences that the Corinthian church were building to keep people from coming to Christ, what kind of fences do we build in our churches today that keep people from knowing who Jesus is? And so from my vantage point, there's at least four major fault lines that are dividing the world today and that then run their way and wreak havoc inside the church. Those four things are these. Age and generational divides. Gender. Politics. And ethnic cultural divisions. Okay? Those are the four, I would say, major ones. Of course, there's several others. Those are four that I would say are, are causing a lot of trouble in our churches. And some of those we've already been talking about, you know, um, a few weeks ago, we had Dr. Carl Ellis come out to our church and, and talk about sort of this ethnic cultural concept and what really leads to churches being divided by ethnicity or culture. And so he was really, and that was really good for us, I think, and we want to continue that conversation. Charlie's been leading that conversation so well for our church uh, for a long time, and we're going to continue to have that. Uh, we also talked about gender a couple weeks ago. You know, Charlie pointed out, why is it that several of our ministries seem to be divided by gender? And so we're, on May 6th, we're having this ministry lunch to sort of mix things up. Let's sort of get people together. And well, politics, it's probably safe if we just leave that one on the side this morning, huh? Maybe just take a break from that one. So, but the one I don't think we talk about enough 
and that really I think is subtle in our churches, is age. The generational divides between different generational peoples. And you know, if you've never taken time to look into how generational studies or research really sort of shed a light on how we interact with each other, I want to suggest to you that there's great value in doing so. There's a couple of books I could recommend to you on this. Uh, Hayden Shaw is the name of one guy who, who does a lot of work on this. Uh, Tom Rayner and his son Sam Rayner have done a book that's, that's been very good. Um, sort of asking this question, what's it like to have all these different generations coming together? Because you see, we do live in something of a unique time where for one of the first times in history, we have up to four or five different generations working together in the workplace at one time. Okay? So you have the traditionalists. Traditionalists were the ones who are born before 1945. Then you have baby boomers, which are 46 to 64, I think. Then you have Gen X, which is 65 to 80. And then the millennials, which is about 80 to 2000. And we haven't quite come up with a name for what's next yet. So, um, But the reality is, right now in our workplaces, we have often at least four, sometimes five, different generations coming together. And some of you know this isn't always easy, is it? It's not always easy. And we don't always have good interactions with each other outside the church. And often what can happen is the assumptions that we make about each other outside the church come in and they manifest and they even grow sometimes in the church. Let me give you an example of this. This is a, a really sad example that I've seen happen um, a lot, and, and I know it's even happened to some of you. Uh, it's often the case today that traditionalists or boomers who have been working in companies for 30 to 40 years are forced into early, early retirement or are let go, and they're replaced by people 40 years younger than them who get paid much cheaper, right? And you know, happens all the time. I don't have an answer for you on it. You know, I, I'm not a, I don't know capitalism. I don't have any theories for how to improve that. But it's a sad reality of the world we live in. And some of you have been impacted by this. And so it's easy then when things like that take place in our workplaces, take place out there, for us to begin to have assumptions about the other group. I think in this example, it's very easy for older generations to become not trusting of the younger, to, to maybe even be bitter or resentful because of experiences they've had. It's also easy for the younger generations to sort of look at the older generations and say, you're stubborn, you're too set in your ways, you're not easy to work with. And so we allow those things to divide us out in the world, but then when we come into the church, those things just keep happening. And what I mean by that is that while I think there, are a, there is a place in the church for groups that are divided by age and life stage. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that those kinds of groups are wrong. So, you know, maybe like a young adults group or, you know, a young families group or a singles group. Those groups are okay. But if they keep us from interacting with each other in the church, then those assumptions we have about each other are just going to grow. Because we're never reaching across to the other side to actually build those relationships across those generational barriers. And what I've tended to see when I go from church to church, 
is I've seen this. I've seen churches, they tend to lean one way or the other. Tend to be majority younger or majority older. That's just, that's just the trend that I'm seeing right now. Particularly like in the young sort of church plant movements, it's a lot of young people. And then in the older established churches, it tends to be a lot of older people. And we just sort of keep these divides up. We're not actually interacting with each other. Did you know, here's a question for some of you folks who are maybe in the boomer crowd or um, the traditionalist crowd. Did you know that most studies show that millennials have the most respect for traditionalists and that's who they want to be most mentored by? Did you know that? One of the reasons for that is because millennials tend to have much better relationships with their parents than previous generations did. And so they want those relationships with older people to grow and to continue. But often, and I'm speaking here as a millennial, born in 87, I'm the same age as many of your kids, I know that. Often when we come into the church, millennials feel like we're not treated any different than we are out there. We don't feel like we're being respected. We don't feel like we're being given responsibility. We kind of feel like we're being told to sit at the kid table, also known as the young adults group. And never, we never get pursued. You know, so the question is, at what point do we become real adults? You know, what, what, what point do we get to join the big kids? Right? And, and so what can happen is then we feel like we're not being pursued into full communion in the life of the church. And on top of that, i got to be honest, it's hard to fit in when we hear the same kind of insulting language in the workplace happen in the church. When we hear people call us things like fragile snowflake, or when we're mocked because of how naive we apparently are, it doesn't make us feel welcome. And so eventually these barriers which have prevented us from, from being feel like we're, we're sort of adults in the workplace, also prevent us feel, from feeling like we're adults in the church. And if we're not going to be a part of the full life of the church, then why come to church at all? And so our generational differences can easily become a fence that we put up, a barrier to keep others out and preventing them from sharing in the full communion of the life of the church. Now, let me try and give you an example here of how many of the fences we build are actually interconnected, okay? They're sort of chain-link fences that, that if you have one, you sort of have the other. I mentioned that another one of the, the divisions, and we've talked about this, that can run through churches is sort of this ethnic-cultural division. But here's another thing to know about millennials, okay? At least 68% of millennials agree that ethnic-cultural diversity is normal for their lives, that's just normal, okay? Neva grew up in L.A. County. That's normal to be in a diverse group of people. It's weird for her to be around people, a, a large group of people who are predominantly white, okay? Same for me. I was, in my high school, I graduated in a class that was not predominantly white. And so it's strange for us to be in a context that's predominantly one ethnicity. That's just, diff that's not normal, you know, my workplace, I work with people who are mostly Asian, okay? That's just the world that we're used to. 70% of millennials have close friends with people across different ethnic and religious barriers, okay? That's normal for us. 
And so when we come into a, a, a context where we sense a resistance to, being, to trying to be multicultural, a resistance to even having the conversation, that's hard for us. That's just weird. And it doesn't really make a lot of sense because that doesn't reflect the reality of the rest of the world that we live in. And so here's something that makes me sad about this. Um, our denomination, the PCA, uh, they recently published a study report talking about sort of the state of, you know, however you want to maybe term this, racial reconciliation, the ethnic cultural conversation. And Charlie sent this out a few weeks ago, and I hope uh, some of you got a chance to read this. Uh, I thought it was very, very well done. They had provided a great biblical framework uh, for talking about these things that keep us divided in the church. And part of this report was uh, they had sent out a, a survey to leaders of our denomination asking, what's your experience with racism? What's your experience with this conversation? Do you feel competent to talk about these issues? And there were several questions that asked, is your church willing to sort of intentionally pursue becoming ethnically or culturally diverse? Is that something you guys are working on? Well, there were some good, good things that came back from that report, you know, and, and some things that, that were cause for encouragement. But there were other ones that made me sad. And sometimes, some of the questions indicated that as many as 40 to 50% of leaders of our denomination are unwilling to pursue what it might take to become ethnically or culturally diverse. Unwilling to talk about our music, unwilling to talk about our budgets, unwilling to talk about leadership, unwilling to talk about the groups and our ministries and our churches. And to be honest with you, that makes me sad. I mean, I even think about the music ministry at our church and what a blessing that has been to me here. I came into this church, I didn't know many of the songs, but I've come to, to delight and, I mean, Arise My Soul Arise is one of my favorite songs now, right? I love it when we sing it as a church. In the last couple of weeks, we've been having some, some diversity coming up here for the offertory, right? A few weeks ago, Anna and Pat came up and sang this beautiful song for us. Anna's voice rocked our socks off. And how else would we have known that Pat had the funk unless we brought up Pat to show, show us the funk, right? And that was awesome. It's not the song I normally listen to, but it was awesome. You know, we had a Mecca come up, right? And he sang this song for us last week. And the worship team, I know, worked with him prior to the service to make room for a Mecca to come and sing this song for us. And man, that was awesome. I'd never heard the song before. But it was great to hear our brother sing to us, wasn't it? I just don't understand why we wouldn't want to do more of that. I, I don't understand. And, and the thing for me, you know, wanting to minister to my age group, my group of millennials who don't know the Lord, the rising case of the nuns of people, you know, we're doing this Sunday school class on people who just have no religious affiliation. The reality is, for us, if we're not, if, if we're not seeing the ethnic cultural conversation in a church, we, we're not wanting to come be a part. That's just a reality. And if, when churches are resistant to becoming multicultural and multi-ethnic, they might as well kiss reaching the next generation goodbye. That, that's just the way it is. And, and so you see how many of the barriers, the fences we build, they're interconnected. 
And what we do is when we put preferences above Christ, when we put our, 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 how we're comfortable, the status quo that we like to maintain, when we put that above people coming to know Christ, it's a problem. It's a real problem that we've created. One of my best friends, Trevor, uh, sweetest guy I know, um, Here's a great example. We talked this morning in one of our Sunday school classes about uh, what it's like, you know, how it can be difficult sometimes to explain our non-Christian friends who are so nice. And Trevor's not a Christian, sweetest guy I know. And he often says to me that it makes him most happy when good things happen to his friends rather than to himself. That's what makes him happiest, and I, and I believe him. And I just find myself wondering, shouldn't we be saying something similar in the church? Shouldn't we find the most joy when we move over and make room for other people to feel joy? When we make room for other people to come in and share in what we have to have this fellowship in the Lord Jesus Christ that Paul talks about in verse 9? Shouldn't that just be our outward desire? And so... What I want to challenge us on here, and again, I'm not going to comment. I don't know how much this affects each one of us as individuals and what barriers maybe are keeping us apart from each other, but let's ask ourselves this morning, have I become comfortable with a status quo? Am I comfortable only spending my time with people who look like me, act like me, talk like me, and do what I like to do? And I just sort of, you know sit back and, and, and stay the way that it is. My challenge for us this morning is if that's the case, then we've put up fences. We've put up barriers. And we need to think through what it would look like for us to tear those barriers down and to pursue intentionally people who aren't like us. Millennials pursuing boomers. Boomers pursuing millennials. People pursuing each, each other for relationships across different ethnic cultural lines, maybe across different hobbies, across different, you know, vocations, all these things coming together to model the unity that Christ has already purchased. So that brings us back to the text. What is Paul's challenge here for us from this text? And the question it raises is, what if there's a way for us to build a fence that fosters unity in our church rather than becoming a barrier to it, a barrier that keeps people out. You see, because fences, they tend to have two purposes, don't they? One purpose is to keep things out, right? It's also to protect what's on the inside. It's also to keep things together. Let's talk about the sheep analogy. Why do, why do sheep need fences? We wander off, man. And we know that we have a shepherd standing at the gate, keeping us in. And he is the one entrance in. He is the one thing that keeps his sheep together. You see, Paul's point here in this text is that while the Corinthians were so busy fighting and building barriers that kept them from one another, they were missing out on building upon the one thing that could actually hold them together. And that was Christ. This is why Paul asks the rhetorical questions that he does in verse 13. Is Christ divided? 
We know this, he does the same thing in chapter 12, right? We did that spiritual gifts chapter a couple weeks ago. Same question there. And he says, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Did your preferences die for you? Did your food dietary restrictions die for you? Did your political leaders die for you? Team red or team blue? Did they die for you? You catch his point. He's using exaggeration because the answer is, of course not. None of those things are true. The one thing that is true is that Christ died for you. And his body is not divided. And so the force of this text this morning is, would you still cling to your preferences and so divide the people for whom Christ laid down his life? Ephesians 4 said, what we read in early in our service, that the unity amongst the people has already been purchased. Christ has already purchased unity for us. Our job is to maintain it. Are we going to be an obstacle to that? Are we going to fight with people because they don't share our same opinions? Are we going to call people names? Quarrel? Don't you see how this destroys everything for which Christ purchased? And I've been wrestling with this myself this week because... To be honest, I am unintentionally a divisive person. That's because I see the world this or that, black or white, no room for any other option. There's no third way. Ask my wife. Okay, it doesn't always go so well for me at home. It's either this way or it's that way. And once I've settled on this way, don't tell me to do things another way. Just a couple weeks ago, you know, we started our, our Sunday school classes. And we were in the, we packed out the other room in there. And so Charlie comes up to me after service and he says, yeah, you got to switch. You got to use the sanctuary. And I had a little temper tantrum in my heart. I want the sanctuary. I don't, I don't want that room. I want this room. You know, I chose this room. Don't tell me what to do. And I realized, you know, this week working on this, that I can be a divisive person. Charlie knows a couple weeks ago I had to go into his office sort of eat, and eat humble pie and just say, Charlie, you know, I think I've been sort of just quarrelsome recently and, I, and I'm sorry. See, the church is a mess. That's the reality. The church is a mess. And we're not different, much different from the mess that's in Corinth. But this is whom Christ died for, isn't it? This beautiful mess of a people who come together across cultural lines, ethnic lines, political lines, generational lines, gender, stage of life, you name it. And in order to make this work, we're going to need to humble ourselves, lay down our pride, move over, and keep Jesus at the center. That's the only way this is going to work. And so let's build together around him. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is your first Sunday with us, you might be thinking, this is a bit of a strange sermon. These Christians are messed up. You got some issues. It's true. But so do you. <laughs> so you'll fit right in. The truth is, everyone in this room is a sinner. And as one of my favorite writers says, that's not bad enough you got a sinner for pastors. Right? We all. We fight, quarrel. 
But Jesus' free offer of grace and mercy is extended to every person in this room this morning. And so I'd ask you to consider this Jesus. And if this is your first time with us, come back. Come back. See what it looks like to be a part of this family of misfits. And who knows? Maybe you'll find a place to belong. Let's pray together. Father, this text is hard. Not because it's hard to understand, but because we don't want it to be true about ourselves. And this whole book in Corinthians is hard because we don't want to look in the mirror and see that it's showing us a reflection of ourselves. And yet your son came and said, I didn't come from the, for those who are well, but I came for the sick. I came for those who are in need. And so, Lord, we leave here today knowing that we have a shepherd who loves his sheep and he stands at the gate and he is the basis for our unity and he now summons all who are far off to come and partake in this fellowship that we have together in the free grace and mercy of our God. Lord, would that be true of us this morning? Heal our quarrelsome hearts. Bring us together around the person and work of Christ. And lead us in this effort, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, let's stand and let's respond to God's word together in song.